I want you to open your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 4, and a very, very important word from the Lord, Colossians chapter 4. I've entitled the message this morning, How to Be an Effective Witness for Jesus Christ. How to Be an Effective Witness for Jesus Christ. Boy, what an important topic. And Paul outlines it for us here in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Now, you know that we have concluded our little mini-series on the new man in Christ, having ended that with Paul's final words there to the new community in Christ, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And that really concludes a study that we long had with regard to the new community, the new man in Christ. And Paul has a final word, a final bit of admonishment, a final instruction time for these Colossian believers in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And appropriately so, it is a message about how to be an effective witness for Christ. You follow along as I read in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your conversation or speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, as I said, this is a passage from the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, and therefore to us as well, on how to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. He has one last shot at them, as it were, to give them instruction from verse 7 through the end of the letter. It's really Paul talking about his friends, and he's greeting them, he's asking for them to be faithful in their ministry, but here, in verses 2 through 6, there is Paul's final instruction to the Colossians. He will never, ever again write anything to these Colossian believers. And this is an important word. And what he does is he focuses in upon what it means to be effective for Christ as a witness, as a testimony, as a person who lives his life for Christ in a watching world. And he's telling these Colossian believers, this is what I want you to be. This is how I want you to act. And boy, what a text for us. What an opportunity for us to learn what Paul has for the Colossians, to go behind the scenes, as it were, to learn from the apostle himself on how to be an effective witness for Christ, really in any city, whether it's Colossae or whether it's Little Rock, Arkansas in 1998. It means for us the tools whereby we learn how to be effective for Christ. There really is an easy, easy way to outline this passage. Really, four parts to our outline, very simple. Here they are. The four ways that you can be effective for Christ in your witness. First, pray persistently. Verse 2, pray persistently. Verses 3 and 4, he tells us, secondly, to intercede expectantly. Intercede expectantly. Thirdly, 
to behave wisely. Verse 5, to behave wisely. And then the fourth component of having an effective witness for Christ in our world is to speak graciously. Verse 6, very simple. Pray persistently, intercede expectantly, behave wisely, and fourthly, speak graciously. This is how you and I can be effective for Christ in our world. Paul gives us a very clear and a very simple formula. Notice the first. Pray persistently, verse 2. Paul says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Paul says the first step in any effective evangelism is to remember that prayer is the foundation. Prayer is the bedrock. It is the most important factor in anyone coming to Christ. And Paul knows that. Paul's a Calvinist. He's a Reformed theologian. And he knows, because of his theological understanding, that the best, most effective way for people to come to Christ is to know that only God does it. Only God brings men and women to faith in Christ. And Paul knows that. And he knows that not only has God established the ends, that is, that God will be the one to bring men and women to Christ, but he also has ordained the means whereby they will come to Christ, and that is through prayer. Paul knows that as a prayer warrior himself, that's the first place, the most important element of any effective evangelism. If you are ineffective in your evangelistic outreach, if you are not seeing people come to Christ within your sphere of ministry, it may likely be because you're not praying persistently. Paul says to the Colossians, I have one last shot at you, and I want you to know that if you're going to be an effective witness for Christ in Colossae, the number one thing you must be involved in is prayer persistence. In fact, he really gives us three dimensions to this persistent prayer in verse 2. The first is that you be devoted in prayer. Do you see that there? Devote yourselves to prayer. And the first thing I notice from that is that if I am to be effective as a witness for Christ, if this church is to be effective as a witness for Christ, it means that we're not alone. Isn't that an encouragement? We're not alone. We're together. We have each other to lift each other up in prayer, to pray diligently and persistently for one another as we face our obligation to witness for Jesus Christ in a watching world. We are not alone in this endeavor. Christ is with us through our collective prayer. You know that in the Bible Church of Little Rock, there are many opportunities for you to gather with other believers to pray. On Sunday morning, for instance, at 8.15 a.m., there are a group of prayer warriors who meet in the conference room and they pray not only for this service, but for our church generally. On Tuesday morning, as I am studying the Word of God in my office, I know that there are a number of ladies who are out here in the worship center and they are praying for me and for our church and for all of the prayer needs of our fellowship. That's a tremendous encouragement. I also know that every fifth Sunday of the month, usually four times a year, there's an opportunity for us to gather, even as a church congregation, on Sunday evening at 6.30, for us to band together for corporate prayer, for the praying evangelistically of our fellowship together. That is so crucial, so important. It's first place. There's nothing more important than prayer. Nothing. And Paul knows that, and he says, listen, if you're going to be effective for Christ, 
You have to pray persistently. You have to corporately gather, and you have to pray to no end. You have to trust God and believe God for all of the evangelistic fervor and outreach of your fellowship. You know, the second thing I notice about this, devoting myself to prayer, is the word devotion itself. It could be translated devote as it is in the New American Standard, but it really means to be busily engaged. I like one of the other translations, to be tenacious in your prayers. Tenacious praying. Are you involved in tenacious praying? Are you involved in the kind of devotion with fellow believers in the way that you know you should as your heart is overflowing with thankfulness to God? It is so, so important to have a praying congregation. I have often said, and I believe it bears repeating, the spiritual maturity the spiritual level, the spiritual growth of any individual or any congregation will be directly related to how much they pray. It may not always be the actual quantity of prayer time, but the quality of it, but the quantity is not unimportant. We need to gather together to pray, and the spiritual maturity of any congregation is directly related to their prayer life. I said when we instituted that fifth Sunday of a month prayer time on Sunday evenings, if you want to know how spiritually motivated you are, find out how many people come on a Sunday evening just to pray. That's all we do. That's all we do on those fifth Sundays of a month. That's all we do is pray. And the spiritual maturity of a congregation is marked by their devotion of prayer together to the Lord. There's an aspect to this devotion that is so incredibly instructive for us when we see the early church praying. In fact, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and I want you to see how the early church modeled this matter of devotion to prayer. I think there's something so grand, so glorious about looking at the early church and finding out how they did church. You know, we hear often in the, in the annals of Christianity today, how do you do church? How do you model a philosophy of ministry? How do you have a, an outreach? How do you teach the Word? How do you involve yourselves in active ministry? What's the right philosophy? Our elders have been meeting on Sunday afternoons for two or three hours at a time, asking ourselves, how do we develop a philosophy of ministry that works its way out into every breadth and depth and life and part of the church? Well, here's one of them, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These, that is the church, the church at that time, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You know that in the early church, even at this moment, even in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has just ascended to the Father, right? So he's bodily just left them. And wouldn't the early church have some anxious moments? Christ, our leader, Christ, our husband, Christ our Savior, Christ our Redeemer, He's gone. And you remember it says in the early part of Acts chapter 1 that they just continued gazing intently into the sky, almost as if it were, Christ, are you going to come back now? You remember the angel said, don't stand here gazing intently into the sky, do what He told you to do. And what did He tell you to do? Go to the upper room in Jerusalem and do what? Pray. Pray. The first thing Jesus told them to do. Corporate prayer. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says the same thing. This was the early church. This is what we need to get back to. 
Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were continually with one mind devoting themselves to prayer. And then look at verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread, probably a reference to the love feasts that they had. From house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. What a unity. What an incredible unity in the church, the early church. And it was a unity because it was wrapped around corporate prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer. And then look how it affected their evangelism, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, God matches devotion to prayer and evangelism. Those two are inseparable. And if we're to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, we must be devoted to the same kind of prayer life like those in the early church. Because if and when we do, God will add to His number those who need to be saved. Because it's God's work. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the same idea. The apostles were being busied with things they shouldn't be busied with. They were serving tables. They were doing all of the task and work of the church, including their involvement in the apostles' doctrine and teaching and study of the Word and ministry. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says that we must devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. We can't be involved in the menial tasks. We have to raise up other men who can do that. We cannot be distracted from our priorities. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it says the Lord was pleased to add people to the church because the word of God was spreading rapidly. Well, you see, that is the key. And Paul knows that. He's part of that early church. And he says to the Colossians, listen, if you're going to be effective in your witnessing for Jesus Christ, you must be involved in devotion to prayer. And not just that. Notice what he says elsewhere in Colossians 4, 2. Being or keeping alert in it. Keeping alert in your prayers. Not just a corporate devotion to prayer, but keeping your mind alert. Why does he say that? Well, because it's so easy for our minds to be distracted. Several, several of you just zoned back in as I was speaking. Your mind went way out into the cosmos somewhere. You're thinking about lunch. You're thinking about the house. You're thinking about the grass. You're thinking about the task. You're thinking about work. You're thinking about next week. You might even be thinking about witnessing to that neighbor or that friend. And those are all well and good, but isn't it so hard to keep my mind alert to the things at hand? And right now the thing at hand is preaching and listening to that preaching and hearing the instruction from the Word of God. But it is so difficult, and how much more difficult it is to pray. You know that prayer is the hardest work of the Christian? Because our mind is so easily led away to other things. My mind, sometimes I'm praying and I'm trying to be fervent in my prayer and all of a sudden I'm thinking about the fact that I'm not praying at that moment because my mind has been cut away to something else. And then I have to sort of slap my mind around a little bit and say, now come on, get back to the task. Be fervent in this. Don't allow yourself to be distracted by the cares and anxiousness of the world. Don't even allow your mind to be distracted by the good things of this life. Pray. Keep your mind alert. It means stay awake. Be vigilant. 
pray with your mind being awake and alert. And he's saying as you devote yourselves to corporate prayer, church, make sure your mind is engaged. And it's not just a physical issue here. He's saying both physically and spiritually, keep your mind engaged in the task, but also allow yourself to realize that Jesus Christ himself is one day coming back. There's an eschatological note here, and he's saying keep yourself alert knowing that one day Christ will return, and when he returns, he's going to ask you how effective a witness you've been for Christ. Make sure your mind is in your work, and it's the work of prayer that he referred. And then not only the responsibility of being devoted and persistent in my corporate prayer, but also alert and watchful, and also prayers of gratitude or prayers of thanksgiving. Look at the latter part of verse 2. Praying with an attitude of thanksgiving. Well, he's really given us a tremendous outline, isn't he? He's telling us, listen, the first bedrock principle of any effective evangelism is prayer. And it's not just prayer, it's devoted prayer. And it's not just devoted prayer, but it's alert prayer. And it's not just alert prayer, but it's a gratitude kind of praying. A thanksgiving in your prayer. Now, what am I to be thankful for? The fact that I'm saved? You know, there are times when maybe we're going through a bit of a tough time as a family or... Maybe there's been an argument, or maybe there's been a tussle of some sort, or maybe it's just a blasé time where you think you're sort of out of it spiritually. And we'll be driving down the road, and I'll look to my wife, and maybe we're discussing how the kids are not being as obedient as they need to be, or some major trial or test in our life, and I'll look to her and I'll say, you know what? Here's one thing we can glory in right now, even though the test is at its height. We're saved. We're saved. Can you imagine that? We are on our way to heaven. Can you imagine that when we go there, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more anxiousness, there'll be no more disobedience, and we will rejoice in the face of Jesus Christ forever and ever. Hallelujah. And you know what that does? It just lifts our hearts. And you know what I just did? I verbalized the prayer of my heart to God. I'm just thankful to the Lord. I just have this gratitude in my heart because God is on his throne, that nothing is going to thwart his plan. He's perfectly capable and able and willing to make sure that anything I do can be effective if it is wedded with a prayer of thanksgiving to Him. Well, that should lift anybody out of the doldrums. You ought to be persistent in your prayer, devoted to Him. You ought to be alert, vigilant, watchful, and you ought to have this attitude of gratitude. Your prayers are accompanied by a thankfulness because the Lord has transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have, according to Colossians chapter 1, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of your life. What a praise. What a praise. Paul says, I'm not going to stop praying for you, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, and I'm going to be praying that you will understand with all kinds of spiritual wisdom and understanding that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects and have an attitude of gratitude. Boy, that's a tremendous challenge, not just to my prayer life, but what I'm praying for. And what am I praying for? That people would come to Christ. But the same thing that has happened to me, that I've been transferred out of that darkness into that light of Christ, that others might be transferred as well. And boy, I can get motivated to do that. I can see my coworkers. I can see my spouse. I can see my kids. I can see my school classmates. I can see all of those people in a totally different light because I'm motivated to be thankful to God for what He's done for me, and I want to share that message with others. Paul is such a thankful man. Even in Colossians, he says in verse 3, give thanks to God of chapter 1. Chapter 1 of verse 12, he says, giving thanks to the Father. 
Chapter 2, verse 7, overflowing with gratitude. Chapter 3, verse 15, be thankful. Chapter 3, verse 17, giving thanks. Chapter 4, verse 2, pray with an attitude of thanksgiving. He was a thankful man. When God slapped him down on that Damascus road and Jesus Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when his blind eyes were opened, he was immediately a thankful man. Because he knew what he'd been delivered from. He'd killed Christians. He despised them. He thought he was doing God's service. And in the reality of that moment, he realized that everything he was counting on that would merit him favor with God was absolute rubbish. He was doing exactly the opposite of what he was supposed to be doing, and he didn't even know it. Totally ignorant. And when God gave him the revelation of his sinful heart, and when he turned in repentance and faith to the God who was saving him at that moment, he immediately started a Christian life on the path of thankfulness, gratitude. Oh, God, I'm so thankful for what you've done. When I look at our sinful world, when I look at all of this stuff that's going on in our country and with our president, I can look above those things and say, God, I'm so thankful that you're on your throne. I'm so thankful you're in charge. If I really thought that these men were in charge, I'd be a basket case. God, you are in charge. And if I'm going to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ, I'm going to be persistent and devoted in my prayer. I'm going to be alert and I'm going to be thankful. Secondly, you want to be an effective witness for Christ? Intercede for others expectantly. Intercede for others expectantly. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. You say, why do you say intercede expectantly? Because Paul says right at the beginning of verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well. He can't get past the prayer. He gives us the first point and he says, listen, if you're going to be effective in your witness for Jesus Christ, you must pray persistently. You must keep alert in it and you must pray with an attitude of gratitude. And it's as though that first point is all that you can say about the matter and yet Paul says in his second point, and by the way, the second most important aspect of being a, a warrior for Christ in our world is to intercede for others. He can't get off the point of prayer. You think I go along. Paul can't get off the point of prayer. He says to himself, I not only want you to pray corporately as a body of believers for our witness in this world in Colossae, but I also want you to individually and specifically pray for very, very targeted requests. And what is that request? Paul gives it. He says, praying, interceding at the same time for us as well, that God will open for us or to us a door for the Word. Now you say, there it is. There's that very mystical language that you've talked about before. He's saying, I'm praying for an open door. Well, he's not referring to anything mystical there. He qualifies what he means by an open door when he says, I'm praying for an open door for the Word. I'm praying that God will allow me the opportunity to see everything in my path as an open door so that I may speak forth the mystery of Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not really talking about anything mystical here. He's not really saying, oh, I pray that the Colossians would intercede for me so that I may find the will of God by the open door. 
That's not what he's saying. There's nothing in the Scripture about open doors in terms of finding the will of God. The will of God's already presented to us in Scripture. The issue is opening a door for the evangelistic encounter. And where is the evangelistic encounter for Paul? Right in front of him. Right in front of him. I want you to intercede for me so that the next person I talk to, the next situation I have, the next scenario that presents itself, I may speak boldly the mystery of Christ, that I may speak forth the word, the gospel, the truth. That's the open door he's talking about. For Paul, every door was open. Do you remember in Macedonia when he was uh, attempting to go all of these different places and it said he went here and the Holy Spirit stopped him and he went here and the Holy Spirit stopped him and he went over here and the Holy Spirit stopped him and the Holy Spirit said go to Macedonia and he received that call and he went and spoke forth the mystery. I mean, Paul, he wasn't worried about which door is the will of God behind. He's simply saying every door, every single door. And I want you to pray for me that every opportunity I have I can speak forth the mystery of Jesus Christ. He saw every opportunity, he saw every door as the opportunity to talk about Christ. And you know, he never tired of asking people to pray for him. He wasn't proud. You know, there might be in our hearts sometimes a pride that says, uh, pray for me, I've been witnessing to 37 people lately, or pray for me, I've got all of these evangelistic opportunities, or pray for me because I'm memorizing 73 Bible verses. You know, there could be an element of pride in that when we ask people to pray for us, but not Paul. There's no pride there. He's not saying, pray for me because I'm this great prayer warrior, I'm this great proclaimer of, of the doctrine of Christ, of the gospel. He's simply saying, pray for me that any opportunity that comes my way, I'll speak forth the mystery of Christ. I just want to be an effective evangelist. I just want to do what God wants me to do. I just want to speak for Christ. And I need your prayers. I love the way he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, I want you Roman believers to strive together with me and for me in your prayers. Agonize. Strive. Well, he's talking about bedrock intercession here. And the only way you and I are going to be effective as a congregation for Christ is if we pray for one another. Do you pray regularly for the pastoral staff? Do you pray for the elders? Do you pray for each other in witnessing opportunities? When's the last time you had someone in this church come to you or you went to that person and said, pray for me, I have an evangelistic encounter, I want to do well, I want to speak forth the mystery of Christ, I don't know all of the answers, I'm a little bit fearful, but I want you to pray for me as I encounter this person at my work, at my school, in my home. See, that's where the spiritual metal is really hitting the surface. It's really where we're at if we're dynamic Christians. If we're saying, pray for me, just like Paul is saying here. He says, pray for me in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Pray for me, Philippians 1, 19 and 20. Pray for me, 1 Thessalonians 5, 25. Pray for me, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 to 2. Pray for me, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Pray, 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 pray. And I want you to intercede expectantly. I mean, Paul apparently believed that the faithful, available prayers of a righteous man accomplishes much. He apparently believed that because he kept saying it. He was reformed. He knew that God answers the prayers of his saints to bring about God's sovereign ends. And he knew that one of the faithful and effective means for the accomplishment of those ends is intercession. Paul says, pray, pray, pray. I earnestly desire your prayers. And he prays that God would open up a door for the Word. Literally, a place for preaching. Just give me a pulpit, he's saying. 
Just give me a place. Just give me a platform. God, all I'm asking for you is an opportunity. I'll speak the words. I'll speak forth the mystery of Christ. This is evangelistic praying at its best. At its best. He's not talking about mysticism here. He's not talking about the mystery of Christ as though it's some sort of ethereal thing. He's talking about the gospel. The, the speaking forth of the gospel of Christ, the mystery that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. He's not talking about mysticism here. He's not talking about the mystery of Christ as though it's some sort of ethereal thing. He's talking about the gospel, the, the, the speaking forth of the gospel of Christ, the mystery that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And it was a door that he wanted to have open, a door of their minds, a door of their understanding to be flung open so Paul could say, here's Christ, here's Messiah, believe in Him. It's an opening of an opportunity for the announcement of Messiah. And as soon as that door flings open, Paul's right there saying, here is Christ, here is Christ, I'm proclaiming to you Christ. And it didn't matter to Paul if it was intense persecution, if they were hitting him, biting him, kicking at him, or it didn't matter if everybody was wrapped in attention at his voice. It didn't matter if it was the worst of times or if it was the best of times. Paul was saying, I'm proclaiming Christ. And by the way, this is so amazing for me to think about when Paul's saying, I want you to pray for me that God would open up a door for the word so that I may speak forth the mystery of Christ. Where is Paul when he said those words, when he penned those words? Where was he? He's in prison. He's in prison. He is saying, even while I'm physically, literally chained to this guard, I want you to pray for me that I will with boldness preach the gospel to those I'm chained to, to those who are imprisoning me, to the whole praetorian guard. I mean, he didn't care where he was. He didn't care what he was doing. He didn't mind the situation that he was in. He just said, give me a Bible and let me preach. Just give me the opportunity, give me a door for the word, and I'm going to go for it. In fact, he says in Philippians 1, it just blows my mind. He says in Philippians 1.12, Now I want you to know, brethren, and this again is a prison epistle, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He wrote all of those behind bars, and he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What? You mean to tell me that you're in prison, and by your preaching in that imprisonment, it's turned out for the greater progress of the gospel? How can that be? Paul, if you were free, you could go to and fro. You could go wherever you want. You could say whatever you would want. You could say it wherever you wanted to. No, no place, no location would bind you. You could proclaim the gospel in a much greater way. Apparently not. Apparently not. Apparently, Paul knew and trusted in a sovereign God, and God said, I want Augustus Caesar's praetorian guard to know Christ, and one of the ways I'll do it is stick that evangelist Paul right in that place. He says, it's turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And listen to this, and most of the brethren, most of the people who are praying for me, most of you Philippians, most of the Colossians, most of the Ephesians, most of the Galatians, all of the people who've heard about my imprisonment, they are trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. Hey, it gives them a greater boldness. Hey, listen, if Paul can be on the shelf in a Mamertine prison in Rome, then I can be bold for Christ in my freedom. And they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Oh, 
blessed be God, His sovereignty rules over all, and in no matter what is going on in my life, no matter where I am, Lord, I may think at times, and it's sinful for me to think it, that I'm in this crummy job, I'm in this dead-end place, I'm in nowhere's land, and yet I have a place of ministry. Because you are sovereign, and no matter where I am, and no matter what my perception's about of where I am, you are sovereignly ruling and reigning, and what you've asked me to do is be faithful in my gospel witness. You might think of yourself in a dead-end job, you might think your place in nowhere's land, but I'll tell you what, wherever you are, that's where God wants you to be, because that's where you are. And where you are is a place for ministry, it's a platform. It may be something not perceived by you or others as grandiose. It may not be something that you perceive as a guilt-edge guarantee of great numbers coming to Christ. That's not your job. That's not my job. All I'm commanded to do is be faithful, and God will be concerned about the rest. One of the things I learned in college when I went out witnessing was I take the initiative to share Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit, and I leave the results up to God. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, God is in charge. He'll take care of things. Is that what we do? Is that our lives of intercession? Are we bold like this? When's the last time you witnessed for Christ? When's the last time you asked someone to pray for you, to allow you the opportunity for an open door for the sharing of the Word of God? And he says in verse 4, that I may make it, that is the gospel, clear in the way I ought to speak, in the way I must speak. He never even saw his life as an option. As soon as he come, came to Christ on the Damascus Road, from his life, at that point onward, Paul said, Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.16. Acts 23.11. God says of him, You must preach. That's my mandate. That's what I'm all about. And I can't do it unless you effectively intercede for me. And you expect that God's going to do his work as a result of that faithful witness. Number three. And we turn now from the praying to the work, to the evangelism itself. Verse 5, behave wisely. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Paul says there is really a two-pronged effect toward effective evangelism. The first two have to do with prayer, corporately and intercessorily. And then thirdly, it's the opportunity for us to behave wisely. It's not just my praying, but it's my living. It's not just what I do in my throne room with God. It's also what I do in the workplace. It's also who I am. Behaving wisely. It says conduct yourselves. That's the word parapeteo. means to walk. It's a manner of life. It means to conduct yourself, to walk, to behave. It's referring to your daily walk. And he's saying, in your daily walk, conduct yourself with wisdom. That's how to be effective as an evangelist. Conduct yourself. Walk. Walk in your life with wisdom. The skill for daily living. Where do I find that skill? The Word of God. Search the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. And then you will know how to behave wisely. Then you will know how to conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders. You say, who are outsiders? Non-believers. That's just a euphemistic way to speak of non-believers. Those outside the faith. Those outside the church. Anybody who's outside the church is not a Christian according to the Word of God. Anybody who is outside the fellowship is not a Christian. Anybody who is outside the worship of the living God 
is an outsider, a pagan, a non-believer. And he's saying, what you must do is conduct yourself with wisdom toward those pagans, toward those unbelievers. Remembering that all of us once were like they are. It says in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, I am praying for you, and what I'm praying for you is that you will walk. Same idea, walk in a manner worthy. If you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You see, what's the balance? The balance is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. I want you to be as shrewd as a serpent, and yet as what? Innocent as a dove. There's the balance. There are times when we have to be incredibly shrewd in what we say or don't say, and how we live or how we don't live. And there are times that we have to be absolutely innocent. We have to be absolutely innocent to those things that are evil. That's why he says to the Roman believers, I want you to be wise to that which is good. I want you to be ignorant to that which is foolish. How do you walk? You walk in wisdom. And when you walk in wisdom, when you behave wisely, you're going to make the most of the opportunity, verse 5. I love this. It's the Greek word agorazo, and it means the marketplace and what you do there. And it's really a word that speaks of you walking along the marketplace as though you were buying up items for your house. Say you were buying up fruit or vegetables or meat, and as you would walk along this marketplace, you as a very wise shopper would look to the left and to the right in that marketplace in the city of Colossae, and you would say to yourself, oh, I see this fruit. I know that this is the season for that fruit, and so I know that there'll come a time very soon when that fruit will not be in season, and so I scoop it up. I snap it up. I redeem it. I buy it. I take up the opportunity that I've been given. And Paul borrows that, and he even intensifies the word by putting the word X on the front of it, X agarazzo. And he's saying, listen, when you walk by the marketplace of people's lives, you take the opportunity to look at that person or that person, and you seize the opportunity. You take it up. You buy it. You redeem it. And you say, I want to make the most of this relationship. I want to take the Word of God and I want to place it as shrewdly and as innocently as I can in the heart of this person. And as I walk by, I say, they may not be in season. They may not be ready. They may not be here. They may not be there. And so I have to seize the opportunities. And because my life also is a vapor, it goes like that, James says. In the Old Testament, my life is like this. <sighs> it's called a hand breath. That's it. That's all my life is in the grand scheme of things. <sighs> Beginning and end, that's it. So I need to take the opportunity as I go through the marketplace and I take the time that's on the shelf and I grab that time and I say, this is the time that I must be an effective witness for Christ. And I must behave wisely as I exploit the opportunity. Use it to the fullest, he says. Seize it eagerly. Take the gospel to those who need it. How do you walk, beloved? How do you walk in this way? Do you walk with wisdom? Do you know whether or not people at work or at home or at school know you as a godly person? They already know that about you automatically because of the sheer force and weight of your godly life. That you don't do things, you don't say things, you don't go places where you know you shouldn't go that don't honor Christ. Do they know you that way? Are you one thing at church and another thing at home? Are you one thing at church and another thing at the school? Are you one thing at church and one thing at work? What is your life like? Are you behaving wisely? Non-Christians are watching. They're watching your life. They're looking at you. They watch what you watch. They listen to what you listen to. Be godly. 
And then lastly, the fourth way to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ is to speak graciously. Speak graciously. Notice verse 6. Let your speech, your conversation, always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Paul says, listen, after you've prayed corporately for that effective witness, after you've interceded for one another for their specific requests for evangelism, after you've conducted yourself with wisdom toward these unbelievers by the living of your godly life, after you've done all of that, then you have to open your mouth. Then you have to speak. You have to use your tongue. You have to use your voice and you have to speak for Jesus Christ. You must speak the gospel to outsiders. And he says, I'm even going to tell you how to do that. And here's how you do that. You speak, as it were, always with grace. Always with charm. Being amiable, gracious words. I like what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, when you're defending your faith, you defend it with gentleness and reverence. That doesn't mean you're not bold, because you can be bold in sharing the gospel of Christ and be amiable and gracious at the same time. You can be passionate about what you believe, and you can be gracious in that passion. You know, I'm passionate about what I believe. That's why I yell when I preach, because I believe that what God's Word says is true. And I believe it is the source of life and hope and victory. And if I didn't believe it, I'd get out of this business. This is the source of life eternal. This is how we live. This is how we conduct ourselves with wisdom toward outsiders. And when I'm passionate about that, I'm passionately coming across to those I witness to. And I say, won't you come to Christ? I told you I've been witnessing to a man for over a year now, once a week in my office. And I passionately say to him, the time is drawing nigh. Now is the day of salvation. Don't allow another moment to pass or you could be spending eternity in hell. Don't do that. I don't want it for you but I can't want it more than you. You have to know Christ. You know what to do. Now is your responsibility to do it. Don't you think after a year of that, they would say yes or no? Be passionate. If you have co-workers, if you have schoolmates, if you have people in your place of business, take them away from that business and take them out to lunch or breakfast or dinner or bring them to your home or bring them to the Bible church and passionately share with them life eternal. Tell them what has happened to you and ask them to join the journey with you. Speak about Christ. And secondly, he says, not just being gracious and charming, but he says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. You know, he's really talking about the retardation of an ugly world. He's really talking about Salt as a preservative, as a saver. That's how we put salt on meat so that we retard its being spoiled or smelly. And we take the opportunity to use our speech as though it were a seasoning flavor in an ugly, rotting world. Just be involved with the speech of the world and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? You can be seasoned in your speech. Oh, what a great opportunity. Your speech gives a right flavor to the discourse and recommends it to the palate so that it can preserve the conversation from natural corruption. Season your speech toward unbelievers. Now, it's also true in the opposite. Is your language indistinguishable from the language of the world? If there's 
no difference. How are they going to come to Christ? They won't. You must live the gospel and you must, must speak the gospel. Even to the point where he says at the end of verse 6, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Well, that's getting right down to the specificity of the bottom line. Even to the last individual person that you have in your sphere of influence. So that you may know how you should respond to each and every individual in your life. How can you be an effective witness? Persistent prayer. Intercessory expectation. Wise behavior. And gracious speech. Boy, what an outline. What a plan. Are you willing to persevere in that plan? Take those four points, write them down, and begin to live them out so that you can be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, You've given us a marvelous Word today. You've given us a Word that is so clear, so simple. Now it is our opportunity to obey it. We don't deserve a ministry like this. We don't merit it. We've never done anything to give us any slight notion that we are the ones whom you must do this with. But you have given us the opportunity, and it is for your glory. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bring us to the place of acknowledging our sin. We confess to you that we haven't been the workers that you've wanted us to be. We haven't been living circumspectly in this world. And we ask that you would allow us to confess it, forsake it. Give us the opportunity to be better and more faithful witnesses for Christ. And as we do, we'll give you thanks and great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.